So what, what do you got written down over there? Uh, so I heard a good podcast, but I forgot. I'll wait. Sure the, another good topic is uh, James Gunn. The director? Yeah. Uh, and then I heard a different one, but I forgot what sparked it. But it was about globalization. Was it the one that Sam Harris and what's his bucket did, or the one with like yeah? The, so um, Sam Harris and Ian Bremmer did a podcast. I heard that one. That one was good, and then there was a different one in the fifth column. I heard where that. I also too. talked a little bit about globalization. Yeah, but I forgot what sparked that conversation because it wasn't anything in the news, but it's still relevant. It kind of just it all plays together right now. But another good one that I think we can get a lot out of is that um, Sarah Young tweets. Uh, where she tweeted like all these things about that white people. Bitch. Yeah. Is it the one that I was telling you about last night that I kind of got into a fight with somebody about? Uh, a little bit. I don't know if it was that girl in particular, Sarah Young, but she's basically saying all these things about white people. Um, can't wait for white How people. How they're the that. devil. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Hold on, what was her name? Sarah Young? Yeah, Sarah, yes. and then last yes. name is J E O N G. Oh, popped right up. Yeah. Didn't even have to. It's just doing all the top stuff. Let's look for people. Is she that Asian chick? Yeah. Okay. Senior writer at Verge, soon to be editor and board of the New York Times, low on technology stuff. Sarah Young. Ben Dominish is, but uh-uh. he has a podcast called The Federalist Hour. Never so, listened to it. Um, it's a good one. You should check it out. Okay. Um, he's more a little more right wing, um, pretty conservative. He's married to what's her name? John McCain's daughter. Oh, Sarah. I don't know. I don't remember. But anyway, but he's married to John McCain's daughter. Anyway, he's pretty right wing, kind of conservative, kind of standard conservative. Um, but he was on the fifth column. And they brought up this point about uh, uh, like the new Vietnam syndrome mm-hmm. with what's going on with all the wars and stuff like that. And I think that's what sparked the populism versus the globalization debate. So we can talk about that. Okay. This is so ironic that she's talking about how white people are like terrible. Did you see her tweets? Yeah, I was just reading. Yeah. Because I'm like... Asians are doing better statistically than any other race in the yeah. United States. Yeah. So why is she like... White people are the devil. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can start recording, but that I've already started. Easy oh, you already started. Yeah, I just figured that way I can make sure that it's picking up our. Oh, okay. Our voices. Gotcha. But yeah, that's that was everybody's argument: is how you one those tweets that she made are extremely racist. How are you going to say I can't wait for white people to die? And all these things, and then come back with the argument that oh, actually, I can't be racist towards white people because it's they're systemically the oppressors of everybody else and racism is only systemic racism is only you know oppression against the non-dominant race I guess Mm -hmm. that's basically her argument and everybody on the left's argument apparently because I didn't know this was going on but apparently this is what racism means now is her argument like the dominant race in the United States because if we're talking globally Asians are the dominant race yeah no but she means in the United States (laughs) but I mean it's 
the, the left, I don't know, I don't know. Obviously, the left is kind of an umbrella term, but the new left, I guess you could say, is just redefining every word in the dictionary to fit their purposes. And it's funny to watch. This is, it's kind of analogous to, you know, the heresy hunts of, you know, the early Catholic Church, mm-hmm. right, where one day, and not even that early, but, you know, this was also kind of analogous to the heresy hunts of the Soviet Union, where, okay, they picked up a stream of thought, and all of a sudden, if you weren't you know, following that stream of thought, right, if you weren't submitting to that stream of thought, you were a heretic. And this is what the new left has done. They, they've totally redefined what racism is so that they can modify it and modulate it any way they see fit. And then if you're not, you know, acquiescing to what they deem to be racism, then, all okay, you're now branded a racist, right? And so yeah, how are you going to redefine racism as systemic oppression of people? That is just the most vacuous statement on the planet. Yeah. <sighs> It's crazy, yeah. Like I said, I was just reading her tweets, and I'm like, seriously? Like, yeah. Like, where do you... Like, what gives you the backbone to do that? Yeah, and then the double standard, right? The, this is obviously racism, mm-hmm. and anybody... It, anybody with, you know, any sort of reasonableism is going to see this as racism, right? And so... And the New York Times, instead of coming out and saying, she apologized, and... If she put out an actual apology, right? Yeah, I'm not. I saw that they had like a statement <laughs> some, or something. Yeah, like some that. half-assed statement where it says, "We stand by Sarah Young. She's a great Asian journalist." Blah blah blah, and she regrets her tweets, and that's it. That that was basically the extent of their their apology, and she didn't really apologize for it. She said that the reason why she put out these tweets was because she was being trolled for being an Asian reporter, and that she had to come out in defense of herself and then post all these things about Asian people or white people sorry yeah so that was her defense and the New York Times basically bought it and said oh we do, we stand with Sarah and we think she's yeah their be exact editor. statement was we hired Sarah Young because the exceptional work she has done covering the internet and technology at a range of respected publications her journalism and the fact that she is a young Asian woman have made her a subject of frequent online harassment for a period of time she responded to that harassment by imitating the rhetoric or of her harassers. She sees now that this is approach only to be served to feed the virtual that too often... I can't read this print, is super small. Um, that we too often see on the social media. She regrets it, and the Times does not condone it. We had candid conversations with Sarah as part of our thorough vetting process, which... Included a review of her social media history. She understands that this type of rhetoric is not acceptable at the times, and we are confident that she will be an important voice for the editorial board moving forward. Okay, that was super small print, but yeah, that's ridiculous. They're defending her. Yeah, and that's a total double standard. Imagine if she had said this about black people. She would have been the the most ostracized person on the planet. She would have been essentially blacklisted and then left to write for Breitbart mm-hmm. or whatever other publication that's just on the fringes, right? But she is at a at the world's leading publication, right? Every world leader reads the New York Times. Even Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Even as much as he calls it the fake news, as much as he hates it, he still reads it. Obviously, he still reads it. And this is the world's leading magazine, and they're basically condoning her tweets and saying, oh yeah, well, we bought her argument, right? And this is a total double standard and we need to 
we need to take back the word racism to actually mean something. Because if it doesn't mean any, if it doesn't mean what we traditionally want it to mean, mm-hmm. right, then I'm totally lost. I don't know what racism is, and I don't have a good enough word to describe actual racists. People like Richard Spencer, mm-hmm. right, people like uh, Jared Taylor, right, classic white supremacists that are masquerading as racists, right? But that's what, that's what I can't stand, is, that, is this double standard that if you say something bad about white people, you can kind of get away with it if you're an Asian, if you're a black person, whatever. I even think there's parameters with that. Like I said, if you are a straight, heterosexual, or Christian white male, you can be the target, and anything that you say about that person is not considered racism. But yet, if that person says anything negative about anybody else, it's essentially racist, homophobic, whatever, because if you're saying something against a white person that's gay, all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, you're homophobic. So even then, I feel like there's still parameters of this whole racism. It's like, only these white people here are what I think you can call not racist actions. Because even if you say something against a white woman, you're like, oh, well, you're sexist. Yeah. So, I mean, there's labels that they put on everything. Yeah. So. And this is the stratification of sort of identity politics, right? It's just how victimized can you be and how many points do you get for being just of a certain identity group, right? Mm-hmm. So at the bottom of the list, you get no points, you get negative points, you're basically kicked out of the group is straight white males. Mm-hmm. Everything just, you're just, at the bottom, you're at identity politics and it just goes up the ladder, right? Yeah. More victimized are white women, gays, and then you get into people of color, black people, and then Asians, whatever it is, right? And so... We can't continue to play this game of identity politics, right? We have to figure out, or we have to cement what we actually mean by racism. And I don't like the way that the left is taking what they deem to be racism, right? Because well, it just... they're essentially creating a culture, a victim culture. Yeah. And, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, it's fine. Uh, but, no, that's, that's the new left. I feel like you're exactly right. They're just creating a victim culture, and you're exactly right. You get points if you meet certain criteria. Yeah. Sorry, but continue. And point. no, but yeah, this what's so funny about this. There's no reasonable position to get here. Once you, once you basically admit, or once you start following that line of thought, it just everything falls apart here, right? It, their reasoning isn't based on actual reasonable positions, right? So all you need to grant them is the mere fact that identity politics is a thing, mm-hmm. and then from there everything just goes chaotic, right? It just there's no stopping the, you know, the heresy hunts. There's no stopping the, the apostasies. There's, it's, it's a new religion, basically, and nobody's quite figured it out, and they're all different denominations, and they're just vying to be on top, right? Because, okay, an Asian woman calls out a white person. Some on the left would go, oh, yeah, that's fine. Other people on the left would go, well, are you saying all white women and gay white people, right? Like, there's no stopping the just how many identities you can latch onto mm-hmm. and essentially being a victim all the way down and this is what's so unreasonable but to bring up another point we're all playing this game without ever agreeing to actually play this game right we, we're now forced to you know acquiesce to their demands and i didn't participate i didn't want to participate but, yeah, but now we're forced to walk on the yeah, exactly yeah and so this is what i was talking to kelly about yesterday i think it was is you know, if I reach a position of, of some you know, modicum of, of power or 
your manager or you know, somewhere in this new company that I'm at, right? What happens if they scroll through my Twitter? Right? I get fired in an instant, right? I said things about Islam that wouldn't mesh well with you know, standard, you know, political correctness, right? I, I'd be fired. I'd be <laughs> they'd be telling me to play at my desk just in an instant, right? And so we're all playing this game, and none of us agree to it, and it's just the fringe that is driving this entire movement. Well, that's sad because you should have the freedom to say those things yeah. and not have to worry about any type of repercussion, either financially or physically or you know, any type of abuse of any kind because you should be protected in order to be able to say whatever you believe as long as, like I said, you're not calling for violence. Exactly. Well, it, it doesn't even have to be a call for violence, right? I can distinguish pretty easily between bigotry, racism, right? The two words are kind of synonymous here. But it's, it doesn't take a genius to distinguish between actual bigotry and racism mm-hmm. versus the positions that I've taken, especially considered Islam, right? But somehow the left has just lost sight that Arabs and Muslims are you know, just idiosyncratic. There's no difference between they them. They fall under that umbrella. Yeah, and so the things that I've said about Islam would just be viewed as anti-Arab bigotry according to their standards, right? So that's... That's where I could you know, potentially fall into some trouble, and yeah, you're right. We shouldn't. We shouldn't have a financial cost to whatever it is that we're saying, if it's not obvious. If if it's just like a joke or a, an opinion, right? If it's if it's obviously not bigotry and racism, mm-hmm. right? So take James Gunn for an example. That's why I wrote him down. James Gunn said a few jokes. I think it was four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. They're not funny jokes. A lot of them were like, okay, a little crazy. A little off the cuff. Yeah, but still, they were jokes. And he lost his job right, as director of Guardians of the Galaxy because a few people just... And this wasn't on the left, it was actually on the right. Mike Cernovich found these tweets. But he lost his job and potentially millions of dollars because of these old jokes that he said. And this is, this is the game that we're all playing now. And it's just... We were just kind of co-opted into it with, without ever agreeing to play this game, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. I, I don't even know what he said. I didn't even know anything about James Gunn. So, yeah, James Gunn a few years ago said, he was basically saying some jokes about kids, like, um, all this, he was watching, I think one of the tweets that I remember, he was watching The Expendables, right? He's like, all this masculinity, masculinity and uh, The Expendables, I'm going to go fuck a child or something like that Ooh. yeah it's somewhere along the lines where he's making jokes about kids right like mm-hmm. where he's just gonna, I think one of them was like he's gonna fuck a kid or something like that right but it's obviously a joke sure right and so yeah I don't I don't think you should lose your job for just making jokes I've said a lot of jokes that are off the cuff right I've said a lot of jokes that I probably wouldn't say in very public audiences right just the most amongst the most close friends of mine right yeah, but, I know your audience type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he said it on Twitter, public platform, mm-hmm. and he got pilloried for it and eventually lost his job. And this is the world that we all have to navigate through now. Well, I mean, Trump, same thing happened to him with the whole grab him by the pussy. Yeah. You know, he thought he was just kind of talking with some buddies and making some jokes. And let's face it, everybody's said stupid shit like that before. Yeah. But during the campaign, apparently nothing was off limits. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, just... It seems like everything you say now is basically documented and recorded and yeah. it's 
going to come back and bite you in the ass at some point. Yeah, and the Trump thing is interesting because everybody was basically calling him a sexist. And he does. He does have sexist behavior, right? He does oh, yeah, no doubt. think less of women. But yeah, like I said, like even at my old job, we would just get together and talk and shoot the shit. And there were things that were being said that I was like, okay, well, that's... Obviously, if you were saying it, you know, if you're trying to be politically correct, we're kind of derogatory towards women. But just being in the being in that scene, I know that the guys that I work with are not terrible people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, we I feel like we never give people the benefit of the doubt, and we're always trying to find the next thing to just be outraged about. <laughs> and we have to stop that behavior because people are losing their jobs, right? People are losing millions of dollars in the case of James Gunn, right? And it's just, it's sad to see that we're all now playing in this world that we didn't want to play in, right? It got forced upon us. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a nice, like, 15-minute introduction into probably what this podcast will pertain. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome to the OWL Podcast, folks. Um, I'm Jameson. I'm here with Jerry. Hello. So, I'm sure if you guys have heard, we kind of feel a little passionate about the whole freedom of speech and... You should be able to say whatever you want to say without fear of repercussion, obviously within some parameters. Yeah. Um, anyway, we'll go from here. Um, populism, I feel like people, when it comes to that, you can look at different politicians such as Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump even to an extent that those are very populist leaders or populist uh, politicians. Um, I guess... How do you view populism? Like, what... How do you see, like, where people who get the appeal from it? What gives people that appeal? I mean, just what... What is populism to you, I guess? Populism is, I guess, both on the left and on the right, are ideas that politicians can always resort to. They're just... They're very universal. It's, you know, economic safety. Mm-hmm. It's, um... To get into the right and the left, sort of the the homogenous nation-state, right? There's foreigners coming into our land and they're degrading our values. Um, So economics, your money's going away and I'm here to save it is a form of populism. Um, Homogeneic societies, right? There's foreigners trying to take away your values and we have to defend them. And that's, that's kind of the two pillars of populism and Trump and both Bernie Sanders played that card very hard, right? Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders was promising economic stability. He was promising $15 an hour minimum. He was promising, you know, free college. You're going to be debt-free, and the state's all going to pay for it. Universal health care, just health care for everybody. Socialism. And, yeah, it was yeah, essentially socialism. And Trump was promising, not socialism, but he was promising a form of economic populism, right? And he was also form, you know, promising sort of national identity, right? You know, um, we have immigrants from Syria, basically anti-Muslim saying, you know, they're coming into this country and who knows what's going to happen when they come into this country, right? We have, you know, Mexicans and Latin Americans basically coming up and, you know, taking your jobs, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So that plays into both national identity and economics because, if the Mexicans are stealing your job and the Muslims are coming in, you know, they want to establish Sharia, then basically the United States doesn't mean anything, right? And a lot of his rhetoric was, you know, a country without a wall, a country without a border, right? It's just basically not a country, right? So sure. 
That's what populism is, and these are very... Well, that also sounds a little mix of globalism in there, too. Well, globalism is the opposite of that. Globalism okay. is the... And before I get into globalism, so... Yeah, sorry, continue your thoughts. Yeah, so that's what, that's what Trump and Bernie Sanders were arguing, right? They were saying, we're here to protect your jobs, you're going to make more money, and we're going to keep the migrants away, and it's just, the United States is just going to thrive based on the policies that we implement domestically, right? Mm-hmm. And so now to get into globalism... Globalism is the idea that borders mean less and less if we really look at them, right? And globalization is the idea that we can build a a global market and we can just trade freely amongst nations, right? The integration of people should be seamless from other countries, right? So, you know, if if I want to trade with China and they want to send people, right, that shouldn't be a problem, right? So we're basically expanding out and trying to trade with everybody because trade is mutually beneficial, mm-hmm. right? We should allow people to move between borders without really paying too much attention to what they're actually doing. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, what globalization is. Okay. So how do you feel about that based on what you just described? Because I'll, I'll tell you how I feel about globalism. Um, I see its benefits both financially and economically as far as the free trade um obviously i think there's some benefits as far as exchanging of culture and exchanging of ideas and things like that i think there's a lot of benefits that come with globalism but that being said i still feel like a nation without a border is not a nation at all um so i still feel like there needs to be borders between countries but i do i do think that there still needs to be like things like free trade um you know exchange of ideas i'm still for immigration i just think that you know, obviously need to go about it doing it the legal way as opposed to just like the european union has it where you can just go between countries without having to go through any type of customs things like that um that's kind of how i feel about it that's very nutshell version of it so how would you explain that to a to a trump voter that is working in one of these old coal mining towns Mm -hmm. or not even coal yeah let's say coal mining right their jobs were lost to technology, and they think that you know Muslims are basically coming into America to implement Sharia, right? How would you, how would you explain? Because I I feel like that is your one of the biggest supporters of Donald Trump, and they were the ones that were against popular or against globalization, more for populist politics, and you know we're really just not seeing the benefits of a, a globalized society. So how would you how would you kind of modify your argument or modulate your argument to explain that to them well i would say that you know the failures of globalism are almost always blamed on like free trade immigration um and it's basically for the rising inequality but is that really the right target to say i mean i think that technology does give the biggest rise in inequality but at the same time i think technology will also in the long run create more jobs than it destroys and i think that that's probably hard to explain to somebody like that because they have such a short-sighted view of things but it's hard to have a a long-term view or (laughs) if you just lost your job no i I understand that because it's hard to explain to somebody so neil ferguson has a great ted talk um, where he calls it the great convergence Mm -hmm. basically the U.S. or basically the U.S. Um, GDP has been rising steadily, right? Sure. Um, it can decline at points, but it hasn't risen as dramatically as we've seen countries like China, India, um, Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, countries that have really just adopted 
free trade, adopted globalization, right? theirs has skyrocketed exponentially. And what we see now is that convergence between third world countries and the United States, right? Which was one of the first countries to adopt free trade and mm -hmm. the principles of Adam Smith, capitalism, basically. And so it's hard to explain to people in coal country that have lost their jobs to industry, to technology, and people continue to lose their jobs to technology. It's hard to explain to them, hey, actually, the world is much better, the world is much safer, mm -hmm. but I know that you lost your job, but, you know, look at all these millions of Indians that you know, are out of poverty, right? So yeah. it, is, it is difficult to explain that to them. It is. <clears throat> and I think when it comes down to it, it's just the person has to have a heart in order to be able to see the big picture of things, but it's, we're very, very self-focused because obviously everybody has their own self-interest. They have their own goals, their own ambitions, things like that. But <clears throat> I, I would just show them, like, you're better off with all these things coming. It's it's hard to see it now, but just you got to give it time. Um, I don't know. It's It's very hard to explain to them, but I do honestly believe, like I said, that in the long run, their life will get better. It's just when you're going through like that hard patch or you just lost your job, you're worried for your family, you're worried for your friends, you're worried for whomever, <clears throat> that they're not going to see the possible long-term benefits. Yeah, true. And I think Stephen Pinker brought this up in his book, Enlightenment Now, but the, we also have a problem with wealth gap where most of the wealth is going to you know, a small percentage of people. Sure. And the wealth that the rest of us don't see, right? Our economy, by all standards, is growing and getting better, but we're not seeing a, a rise in, in pay. We're not seeing better better opportunities. But most people have, and that wealth gap creates anxiety <clears throat> in societies, and that feeds into a lot of what drives populism, right? Is mm -hmm. that people aren't better off, and what they hear from politicians like Trump and Bernie Sanders is that rhetoric that I'm here to help you, I'm here to actually take care of your jobs, right? And it's a very popular position, that's where the word populism comes from, but a lot of politicians, people like Hillary Clinton, weren't taking those positions. Mm -hmm. She had a very centrist position saying, actually, uh, let's you know, be reasonable, stuff like that, and that's not popular, right? So, yeah. Agreed. But it's people... They just like to look for ways to take the burden off themselves and to put it onto somebody else. Yeah. Which is why I think populism can't succeed in a lot of different areas. Bernie Sanders, for example. Yeah. Um, it's. I don't think that that's necessarily the best course of action. Just because I'm the kind of person that's like, you got to make your own life. You can't depend on somebody else for yeah. it. But it's when you're looking for when you feel like you're sinking and you're looking for a life raft. I mean, and you see somebody out there throwing you the rope. Yeah. Obviously, I can see why people are drawn to those people. I just still don't think it's necessarily the best idea. And I'm not going to say that all populists out there have over-promised and under-delivered. I, mean, I feel like a lot of them have, but it's I understand why people are lured to them. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, But yeah, <clears throat> and then, I mean, a, a lot of the things that also drive populism is just the availability of information and how quickly people are to judge and you know they see things like corruption amongst politicians they see politicians on Congress hasn't done any meaningful legislation in a while right mm -hmm. you have a lot of these news stories and you think well just fuck it let's just destroy the whole thing and see what happens right because it's obviously not working for us you know as 
middle class people, right? And this is just any typical Bernie Sanders or Trump voter, right? The system isn't working for us. Let's throw a wrench in the entire system. Let's watch it collapse. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, from those ashes, something good will happen, right? And yeah, they're, yeah that was that was the mentality of a lot of the things that were driving you know, the popularity of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, right? Because they, the Bernie Sanders crew was wanting free health care, wanting free college, all these things. And you just keep throwing out the word free, people are going to be yeah. like, yeah, like that. It's a very, it's yeah. a very popular opinion and a very popular position for people to adopt. And sadly, it's, it's, an, it's an illusion, but... Socialism, just, let's be, I'll be flat out and say it, it doesn't work. Yeah. It, it is not ever going to work, and there's no examples out there of it actually working, no matter which country you point to. I... You know, Sweden, Norway, those, those countries, are socialist they're not countries. socialist countries. No matter what people say, those are not socialist countries. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I guess, one of the things that frightens me with populism is look at what happened recently in New York. That uh, She's like 28 years old. I'm drawing a blank on her name. I know she's Puerto Rican. Oh, the lady that just won. She's a democratic socialist, and she just yeah. won, and I feel like she won on a very populist yeah. stage. Yeah. And things like that scare me because I'm like, you're thinking very selfishly, and that's and that's what I feel like socialism is. It's a very selfish thought process. Yeah. Um, just because you feel like it's okay to take money from somebody else, you feel like it's okay to take somebody else's hard work and make it your own, and I'm not okay with that, personally. <clears throat> so populism does scare me when it's something that I feel is very counterproductive like that. But on the flip side, Trump's populism scares me, too. I yep. mean, he was, he was promising to make America great again, and I don't feel like he obviously can deliver on a lot of his promises. Yeah. You know, but it, you kind of asked me, like, how I would explain something, like, how I feel about globalization to a Trump supporter. How do you feel about globalization? What are your views on it? I mean, do you agree with how I felt about it? Do you have disagreements with what I say about it? How would you, you know, explain I mean, it? Your summary was pretty much spot on with what I agree with, I think. Nations need to find borders mostly for the one ideology that's out there that there are actually a few ideologies but the most pressing one or the most salient one is obviously Islam Mm -hmm. we need to be able to defend borders so that when ideas mesh or when ideas clash through the movement of people Mm -hmm. we're able to properly vet okay well we want these people we don't want these people for obvious reasons and to to deny that Islam and secularism in the United States are just going to clash there's no there's absolutely no middle ground to give here right it's just you're deluding yourself right? mm-hmm. there's no way that Islamic society is any way going to integrate itself into the United States right it's either Islam gets implemented into the United States as its government or secularism wins right mm-hmm. it's one of the two and for those reasons and obviously just the trade between countries I think borders need to be properly defined and need to be defended and and not just not just for the reason of Islam, right? Moving too many people through borders causes a national identity crisis. And we see this in Europe and we see this in the United States and this gave rise to populism, right? We we saw the movement of African migrants, we saw the movement of Syrian refugees and you know far east migrants as well moving and basically flooding all of Europe. And what you saw rise to was a very strong national identity 
and saying, we are losing our, insert country here, we're losing our French values, we're losing our German values, we're losing our American values, right? Mm -hmm. That gives rise to that identity politics, to that populist identity, where it says, you know, we're just basically, we're basically being inundated here, and Germany is no longer for Germans, Germany is now a country for Muslims. Sorry, guys. We shall. Thank you. It's playing, so if you'd like to pick oh. up where you left off. Uh, where were we? You were so talking, talking about yeah. yeah, the movement of people between borders and an influx of people, too many people coming into your country creates that national identity crisis, right? And we mm -hmm. can segue into identity politics here mm -hmm. if you want to. But too many people, let's say you're in Germany, right? And what happened in Germany, they let an influx of Syrian refugees move into the country. It's about a million. France, Sweden. Yeah, France. Yeah. But Germany's the most salient, right? Yeah. This is why Angela Merkel had the lowest essentially percentage of votes she's had ever. Almost lost the entire yeah, party and that she why was why a significant portion of their government is now not a significant, but alarming amount, right, is now basically a neo-Nazi party. Mm -hmm. um, an influx of people creates that national identity crisis, right? And it's it's not restricted to any one state. It's not restricted to just white people. It's not restricted to Western, European, or United States or Canada. Right? This happens everywhere, right? This happened in Mexico with... Haitians basically moving into Tijuana and most of Mexico, right? This happens with their, you know, very prejudiced towards Nicaraguans and El Salvadorians, that shithole of an area. And so this, yeah, this is not just, you know, this isn't just idiosyncratic to white people, right? This happens everywhere. But the most salient one is places like Germany, right, where this causes that national identity crisis. And this is a problem with globalization is that people need to be more careful with too much change happening all at once. Because what we see now is that people feel their their nation state is essentially being threatened because you don't have the homogeneity mm -hmm. that you need in a society, right? So Germany for German people, right? That's a slogan that you could very easily see. So based on what you just told me, does globalization destroy local cultures or does it lead to like a resurgent resurgence in traditional cultures yeah it leads to if globalization is done right what it leads to is the integration of people into a secular society right and what I mean by globalization is I mean the movement of people into you know what we would traditionally call western European values right mm -hmm. traditions of liberalism um, liberalism John Locke and yeah. that um Father's liberalism. Yeah. Yes. Um, so secularism, liberalism. You know, you don't have you know a state religion. It's just you know, freedom of religion, things like that. All right. So when you move these people throughout borders, what you have is ideally is the integration of people into those values. And what you sadly see is is you do see a sort of surge of identity politics. Right. You what you would ideally see is not the death of any sort of culture that you would have in that society, right? So a town like Fort Collins, mm -hmm. if you have, what, at the most 160,000 people here, Roughly. right, you, you introduce 10,000 people from Bangladesh, 
right? What you would ideally see is not Fort Collins turning into you know, a Bangladeshi community. What you would see is Bangladeshi food, you know, <laughs> uh, arts and yeah. music and things like that, right? Things that we would genuinely value from a society, right? The, you know, differences of opinions. Hey, actually, we view things like this, but, you know, we'd love to integrate it like this. And, hey, have you tried this amazing liquor that we ferment? Right, we ferment it from this grass that only grows in the plains of Bangladesh, right? Whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's what we would ideally see, right? Is is the things that we would absolutely love to integrate into our communities. We have great seafood. We have Bangladesh is landlocked, but anyway, we have great cows that we cook, <laughs> something like <laughs> that, right? It, yeah, whatever it is. But the food that we make is amazing, and look at all these spices that we're importing, right? Something like that that we would genuinely value. Something and, that you can actually learn about that culture. Yeah, exactly. And you know, maybe differences of opinion and ways to look at certain things, right? different view on the world yeah that would be an amazing thing to integrate into our community Mm -hmm. but what we don't want and this is again one of the problems with globalization and the left is that what we don't want we don't want to integrate the shitty parts of a shitty community right so Bangladesh right classic example predominantly Muslim Mm -hmm. what we don't want is 10,000 Bangladeshis to come and have their entire culture accepted and okay, all of a sudden you're now murdering apostates. You're now murdering infidels. Somebody like myself, right? Somebody yeah. that makes countless jokes about Islam and Muhammad. And okay, well now you know I put out a blog or this episode, right? And okay, now I'm being hunted by ten thousand Bangladeshis that think it's okay to murder infidels. Right. Right. So that's what we don't want to integrate. And so it's not necessarily a resurgence of old cultures or that we want to see, you know the way things are done die right like those things we can celebrate throughout eternity and that's what history is for but what we also don't want to see is the bad parts of the society be integrated so it sounds like you're saying like we want to see the best of those cultures be integrated into our into our culture ideally ideally that would be the best way but that rarely ever happens right so take britain Mm -hmm. not britain but england as an example there right, been some serious issues, especially with the Muslim. Community yeah, and there. so you you poll you poll Muslims in in London. I think it was, it might have been the, let's just say London, just to be safe. But they polled them and they asked them, you know, what are your thoughts on gay marriage? Zero percent. You almost get no ubiquity amongst anybody, but zero percent of Muslims in London, or maybe all of England, let's just say London to be safe. But they thought that homosexuality was you know an evil sin and they did not accept it basically Mm -hmm. right that is that's an alarming number you don't get universality like that anywhere no but with that that is an alarming number and it's a failure of people in those societies to force muslims to integrate and say actually we're a western secular country what we value is a range of opinions and if you have a problem with that, that's fine. But what you can't act on that is, again, in, in law and, you know, personally, right? You can't go out and harass gay people, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, that is an example of globalization failing, right? We, we don't want the worst of societies to integrate so seamlessly into our society. So, correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically kind of how I'm interpreting what you're saying is... 
under this umbrella of what you're saying, like the new left is, is that they are saying that we are, we being like people like you and I, who maybe not necessarily abide by the ideals of the new left, or even just abide by, anyway, we'll just stick with the new left, um, that we're essentially supposed to be forced to accept both the good and the bad that comes with a culture. Yeah. It's trying to essentially embed itself in a community, say Fort Collins, for example, that we have to accept the fact that they condone gay marriage and that they're okay with going up to the top of, let's say, the biggest tower in First Net, or in Fort Collins and essentially throwing these gays off the roof. Yeah, and that's a... This, this is a problem because the, the left is essentially scared to call out. Not scared to call out, but they're, they don't want to recognize any differences between cultures, right? According to the new left, and I think it's Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson basically calls it, you know, the uh, postmodern truth movement. Mm-hmm. Postmodernism is a, is a movement amongst the left that basically saying, Truth is not objective. Truth is entirely subjective. What you think is true is only based in the culture that you grew up in. Sure. Right? So with that line of thinking, <laughs> nothing is wrong. Right? How can anything be wrong? If enti- if truth is entirely subjective, mm-hmm. how, is, how is subjecting women to living an entire life in a burqa wrong? Or even genital right? mutilation. Right? It's just your own Western idealism that says that you know subjecting women is wrong right sure. and so this is a position that the new left has adopted and this is a position that is becoming mainstream and so when you say you know, what is how can muslims integrate into a society like fort collins well if it was up to the new left right it, it would just bring the worst of islam over right mm-hmm. it just we would see women walking around in burqas which we do see yeah right we see you know women being segregated in their mosques right it's just and you know a lot of things that go on internally right it's just women are subject to half of their inheritance all these things right and so yeah that is that is kind of the worst of the new left and of globalization is if you're if you don't have a backbone and you're not willing to call out cultures and say that one culture is objectively obviously better than other cultures then you've lost the plot mm-hmm. you, you're entire you're fucked because we need to be able to recognize that yes some ways of living are better than other ways of living that is that is as vapid a statement as i could say but apparently this causes a lot of chaos within new left ideology right sure and so that's just something that we have to get over and we have to recognize that yes yeah some ways are better than at existing and being than other ways right i mean it's easy to say like if we can go ahead and grab the quran and make it better by just changing even a few passages that should indicate to them right there that we can go ahead and make your life better yeah i mean mean, that might be a little bit of an extreme example but i feel like it's accurate yeah i could i could i could pick five passages in the quran and immediately we would see suicide bombings go away we would see the subjugation of women go away Mm -hmm. right it would change a lot of the dynamic in you know wherever the Muslim community is, but not to, not to you know get too distracted by what the problems with Islam, but I think we could easily dive into that. But. Yeah, um, but just just to hammer home the point about what globalization means, right? It's just globalization is is basically on a tightrope, mm-hmm. and 
this is a quote from Tolkien, but, you know, sway a little from the path, and you basically, what was Galadriel's quote? You're on the edge of a knife, and you stray but a little, and oh, the yeah. entire quest is fucked. Something like that, basically. Frodo. Yeah. And that's, that's, just, that's essentially what globalization is, right? You are on a knife's edge, and if you're not always brought back by rational thinking and reasonable thinking and, you know, secularism and all the things that make our society great, if you're not always brought back to those values, you're going to fuck it up. And this is what the left is just seemingly determined to fuck this entire thing up, right? And we, we, we should, we couldn't segue into Islam, but just to hammer home that point, like we can't allow both sides to just fuck it up so badly for us that that we're just acquiescing to the worst of every other culture. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry, just I googled it real quick. It's because it was driving me crazy. Uh, the quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of you all. Yeah. <laughs> Yet hope remains <laughs> while the company is true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's globalization. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> hey, thanks, Token. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that absolutely makes sense. Um, so I guess when it comes to like let's say third world countries, I can definitely see the benefit of globalization. Yeah. Uh, look at Vietnam. I think is a great example because. Even though, you know, we went to war with Vietnam, they're a communist country, things like that, we've essentially applied globalization to Vietnam, and now they're, even though there are sweatshops and people say, you know, sweatshops, people live in terrible conditions, but look at the benefits that's essentially brought to Vietnam. And Vietnam is ostensibly still a communist country. Yes. It's classified as one of the four communist countries in the world, right? China is one, but not really. China, Cuba. Venezuela. Venezuela. And and Vietnam. Vietnam. But it's still, even the globalization aspect of things of bringing like sweatshops and free trade and things like that to Vietnam have actually really benefited a lot of the communities there. Singapore is a perfect example. Is there a difference between Singapore people and, you know, Vietnamese people? They're all in the Mekong Delta, right? Just pretty much the same people. There's no difference. The biggest so, difference, I think, is the fact that one's adopted capitalism, one's right. adopted Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, yeah. Was, that was Neil Ferguson's point, and it's great. I don't know if I sent that to you, but it's worth watching, right? And he's saying the argument that I bring up there is that there's no difference in in, in what we would consider race, right? There's mm-hmm. no difference in... There's not, there's not that drastic a difference between Singaporeans and Kenyans, or something like that, right? Like, right. There's, okay, obviously, one is black, and the other one is short, you know, Asian, Asian, right? Yeah. So, the difference between a communist country and one that has adopted the values of the free market and capitalism is just day and night, right? Mm-hmm. One country leads the world in GDP, and the other one is a hellhole, right? And so, yeah, we, we globalization done right means that countries adopt values of free market, of mm-hmm. hopefully secularization, but more more importantly, the free market and ditch socialism. Yeah. Well, I guess Venezuela is another perfect example. I mean, you can see how terrible life is for the Venezuelans. Did you see yesterday that there was an assassination attempt on the president of Venezuela? No, I see that. Yeah, so they... Some Venezuelan, like, rebels or whatever, essentially, they got drones, and they strapped explosives to the drones and they essentially just started to try to fly them towards a public speak or a public speech that he was doing and unfortunately they 
went off too soon. And I, I guess I shouldn't say unfortunately. I mean, it is I don't, unfortunate. Uh, yes, it, let's be honest, it's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they essentially went off too soon, and the assassination attempt was a failure, but they essentially were trying to assassinate him. Jeez. Just because their life is such shit in yeah. Venezuela. I mean... They don't have any money. They have nothing. Anything's the property of the state. Yeah, it's crazy. But anyway, the point I was trying to make with like globalization in a third world country is you can't. How would you like say like the benefits that do come to a third world country with globalization? Well, the benefits are measurable in every way, right? Quality of life instantly goes up, and not just incrementally. It goes up exponentially, right? Mm-hmm. And if so, mathematics, right? incrementally right you have a chart and this is your this is your x right this is your y sure right this is your quality of life it's not just i can't see he's doing essentially a x y x y graph yeah graph and so that's that's incrementally right this x y this is exponentially right yeah so the numbers double because you're rounding to power of two right so life improves exponentially when you implement free market values and when you implement trade in any country, mm-hmm. right? And this is measurable in the shittiest places on earth, places like Kenya, who border the Congo. The mm-hmm. Congo, by every metric, is one of the worst places to live. Kenya could have been, just by extension, a part of the Congo, sure. right? It, it, there's no discernible border, right? It just, it just so happened that Kenya adopted free market principles and now Kenya is a thriving economy in Africa it's not great obviously it still has a lot of problems sure but Nairobi it's an economic hub especially of Africa Mm -hmm. right and so and you do this you do this with every comparable nation around the world right look the difference between like we were talking about Singapore and any other you know Far East nation right in uh, Burma yeah exactly and you do this with China for example China, with Mao, adopted you know, the Great Reform, and everybody, basically 50 million people died, right? Everything was a property of the state. It's one of the worst qualities of life, right? You start implementing free market principles. Granted, China is a very you know, autocratic state, but it doesn't harbor any of the communist economic principles that it once did, right? Immediately, quality of life goes up. Immediately, free trade starts to happen. Even Second like largest in, economy in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because they have one of the biggest you know, populations on the planet. But they started adopting free market principles. They started trading with other countries. They started being an economic powerhouse, right? One of the best economies in the world. And it's because they adopted the principles of the free market, the principles of globalization, where we're going to trade with other countries and it's mutually beneficial, mm-hmm. right? And so... India did this as well. Their poverty rate shot down. You know, every country that adopts this and doesn't hold on to communistic or even feudal practices, right? Any country that adopts the free market, that globalization and starts trading, their quality of life shoots up. And so that would be that would just be a very salient example of how a third world country benefits from adopting you know, globalization, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah, that was the answer to your question. No, that's a perfect answer. <clears throat> um, I feel like we've kind of described both of our views on globalization, benefits, disadvantages, things like that that can happen essentially with it. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I would like to get your opinion. So, oh, sure. 
when you when you see an influx of people into any society, and not just too, it doesn't have to be too many, right? So sure. Syrian refugees, I think the U.S. let in in the tens of thousands, right? It's Somewhere not, in the park. It's not a, a massive influx of people, right? When you're but, looking at three hundred twenty-five million with a couple ten thousand, yeah. Yeah. So what what you see now, especially amongst Trump voters, right, is 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 this sort of this this identity where you know we're losing our identity the US is not for Americans anymore right so i guess i would just say you know how would you respond to that how would you say you know okay do they have a point do they do they are they exaggerating the point right it's just is sharia law that well poised to make a drastic you know, influence in our society um, and then this is right this isn't just um, this isn't a, a small point, right? This was Trump's big... I mean, he still wants to... Ban. Yeah, he still wants to implement a Muslim yeah. ban, essentially. And so this was a big point for Donald Trump, right? And a lot of his voters, right? And so, you know, I guess I would just ask, you know, how would you respond to that? How would you say, you know, because of globalization, because of our sort of moral inclination to help refu- Syrian refugees, right? Mm-hmm. We've allowed a lot of Muslims to come into this country... And now we get a bit of a backlash. Not a bit, a substantial backlash because Donald Trump was voted into office. Right? We now have a substantial backlash because of this identity game that a lot of Trump voters are playing where you know, we're, we're, like I said, we're, we're losing our country, Sharia's going to take over, things like that. It's a hard question because I see the... I see where people say, like, Sharia's going to take over because it's kind of like something that we, we touched on earlier with... This is going to piss people off, but, like, with the whole new left, they're saying that we have to embrace these cultures, these ideas, and yet they don't... And, and I hate with the fact that the new left, there's so many people that are like, we need to have women's rights, we need to have equality, we need to have all these, you know... You know, people need to be able to not be seen as, like, a gay couple, but just as a couple. Things like that, that there needs to be so many different things that are inbound that essentially butt heads with Sharia law. So I feel like I see, to an extent, why some people are worried with that people from Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan, things like that, people were, even Egypt, places that have high Sharia law belief systems, yeah, um, that are coming into the United States, that they can see where they're worried about that being implemented, and the fact that I see there's a worry because the new left would probably try to embrace that because they don't want them to feel excluded or they don't want them to feel like we're not tolerant of their culture. So it makes it very difficult. Like, I could see... I could see that being very hard for somebody, and I feel like that's probably why a lot of people voted for Trump because they thought that maybe they'd be protected. You know, we vote Trump in, he's going to keep those people out of the country so we don't have to worry about Sharia law coming into our... or into the country, but... Then again, who's to say that they're not even educated enough to know what Sharia law is? It's just maybe they're just so worried about Muslims coming in because people have been told for so long, like, that's the terrorist. And they're not, they're not wrong. And I think this is something that we should probably talk about, too, because we've mentioned it in several different of our podcasts before, issues that we've had with the Muslim community. And I, I think that we should really probably focus on that because you and I, I think, are probably well-versed enough to talk about the different issues that come with the Islamic community. Um, But to try to answer your question, I feel like 
people are worried because there's so many people that are trying to say we need to be tolerant of that culture. And that culture of the people that embrace Sharia law essentially don't assimilate to what you and I believe and that we don't have, they don't have the same acceptance that we would have, you know, being like, you believe what you want to believe, but let me believe what I want to believe. And I feel like a lot of people are worried that that's essentially going to be overlooked. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. But I think you're a little too erudite in your okay. analysis of this. Okay, so let's, let's think, break it down then. So I think you're being a, a little too intelligible in your concerns about people's concerns. So dumb it down? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think people's concerns, and you have 50 million evangelical Christians sure. that were one of Trump's biggest base. Their concern is that Christianity is essentially going to lose out to Islam, right? And so I would totally agree with your concerns about the left, right? I would agree that the left is, is, is doing too much to make it extremely easy for things like female genital mutilation to happen, for the spread of basically proselytizing of Islam in U.S. jails and in impoverished communities, places like Minnesota, where we have a very big Muslim population. Those are concerns that I would share, right? But a lot of the concerns amongst Trump voters was just that, right? They weren't as versed in Sharia or Islam, that they they have concerns that I would just not agree with, right? And that would that be... Essentially, it would impose upon their Christian beliefs. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Christian beliefs wouldn't be implemented. We would just have... Muslims or terrorists everywhere. The, the, they bought into that whole 9-11 essentially conspiracy of people believing that, you know, like, all Muslims are here to blow up, you yeah, know, towers, things like or, that. Yeah, even just some Muslims, right? Sure. Like that. So, so yeah, I think you were... I would, I would agree with your analysis because I know much more about Islam than I think most then, people. You know, the average Joe down the street. Exactly. Okay. So, but yeah, I think, I think we do have to dumb it down a bit. And this isn't... But yeah, no, I, I, I legitimately, we have to dumb it down a bit because it's just people are not that interested in learning. And sure. I think we put ourselves too much in a bubble. So yeah, I guess if we're going to dumb it down, we're going to put it from a religious as- aspect. Of, I come from a religious background. I know that people believe that if you don't believe in Jesus, essentially you're dying and going to hell. Yeah. Um, and I feel like probably a lot of the base Christians believe, you know, like Trump is going to keep them out of here so that we can still keep believing in Jesus and we can still keep... Yeah, Jesus is going to reign supreme. Exactly. And, you know, they don't want to feel like when they turn around the corner there's going to be a mosque on every street corner. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there are some concerns I've seen that probably are valid in the fact that, like, if you look in New York, sometimes during huge rush hour instances, there are so many Muslims that have been brought into that community that they've actually had overflow of Muslims going into the streets during prayer hours that has actually stopped traffic because... That's on purpose. Yeah, I would probably. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's legitimately on purpose. It's meant, to, it's meant to proclaim Islam as the dominant religion. Mm-hmm. Call the prayer, things like that, right? It's meant to say, we're here, we're not going anywhere, and they're playing a generational game. Yeah. And we're playing a short-term game. They're here for the long haul. They're their plan is a global society of Muslims 
everybody that submits, right? And so, yeah, it is. That is very intentional. And, and that could be worrisome to a lot of people that, that see that because they feel like, I think that that's going to be essentially something that imposes upon their beliefs. You know, people are very passionate about what they believe. People are very passionate about their religion, their ideologies, things like that. And that's something that scares them. And I feel like that's something that, you know, bringing in that many different people into the community frightens them because and I think the other aspect comes down to they're worried about how they're going to essentially make a living yeah which I think is a valid concern because I don't want my taxes or my dollars going towards something that I essentially don't agree with but that could be another concern for them as well because they could see like all these people integrating into the community especially when you look at somebody like Germany who has great well let's not say great but they have huge social programs yeah. very you know like oh okay I mean there's videos that you can go up on YouTube and see of essentially Syrian refugees coming into Germany and being handed stacks of money yeah and that image is very powerful to somebody that sees that thinking like that could be my money going to a Syrian refugee and now yeah. I'm paying for them to live here and they're not contributing to my economy they're not contributing to my society or my uh, community anything like that and that's a very powerful image I think yeah and I feel like that's something that can really resonate with somebody as well because when it comes down to it, everybody can essentially relate to money. You know, like yeah. I don't want to pay for him to not work, work and while yeah. I'm working. So I think it comes down to those two different principal aspects. People are afraid of the change that could essentially be bred with bringing in such a strong-minded community, and the fact that they feel like, well, I'm giving you money to not work. Yeah, which might not necessarily and change be the my case. culture and change my culture because yeah. a lot of the a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the evangelical right, like you listen to people like Charlie Kirk, mm-hmm. who I listen to a lot, his um, his entire position was that the United States was founded on Judeo-Christian values. This is what people genuinely believe, right? right. I would I would disagree heavily. I've read a lot about the American Revolution, and I've a very very good understanding of what they actually believed but people like Charlie Kirk modicumly are, are right about the Judeo-Christian value mm-hmm. not that we are a Judeo-Christian nation but people especially in that evangelical right truly believe that in any sort of integration with Muslim people is degrading those Judeo-Christian values yeah and so that is that is a genuine concern for them and so we have to flip the script with them as well, right? Just as much we have to flip the script with, with the far left and tell them that. the For me, the name of the game, the plan is to have a truly secular society where what you believe doesn't matter to anybody. What you, know, you say, obviously with a few parameters, matters very little, right? It's just you know, how you vote should influence our society runs right and so that to me is the name of the game right is is secularism a society that is informed by science mm-hmm. and not by the bible or the quran right that to me is the end goal right and so i do struggle sometimes to sort of sympathize with people that we might converge on the fact that i don't want more muslims integrating into our society mm-hmm. but for entirely different reasons right and so yeah something that we can talk on later, but sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, there's my point was that you know we have to people that I think have a good grasp of what what Islam actually means need to be careful about making allies with the wrong people, right? We we have to be careful about. Yeah, I could totally agree with somebody like Richard Spencer and not allow more Muslims into the country. Mm-hmm. But me and Richard Spencer couldn't be more diametrically opposed in all of our worldviews, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we just we do have to pick and choose, and we have to be a little more careful as to our analysis. We have to kind of, you know, dumb it down a bit <laughs> when we're actually interpreting people's concerns, right? And yeah. So, so, yeah, that's just my point. So, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to use the restroom. You can feel free to kind of expand on it, but um, I think we're going to go down a path here that we necessarily didn't write down here, but it's something that's kind of, it's getting me thinking, like, I think we need to expand on. So Islam as a community, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of issues that come with that. Um, And somebody that I necessarily don't agree with on a lot of different topics, but I still respect him to an extent, but somebody like Bill Maher, who I think is very, very liberal, but still has a good point of view when it comes to Muslims, Islam, things like that, and he, he's very smart when he says that, you know, the things that they do, like the genital mutilation, um, throwing gays off of buildings, you know, essentially if a woman gets raped and there's not, like, four witnesses or something like that to prove it, essentially she can be stoned to death. Things of that nature that I think are very just terrible and that I believe Islam is need is in need of a reformation, kind of like the Christians had during, what was it, the 14th, 15th century, something mm-hmm. around that line. Um, but the question I'm going to ask you is essentially think, how do you think Islam poses a problem to essentially not just the United States but to other communities around the world? And what are the biggest problems that come with this and and how is why is it that the united states and let's say the left in general looks at islam and says that this is something that we need to be tolerant of why do you think that that is and why do you think that we need to essentially look at communities like syria that are having so many different issues and things like that and be essentially helpful and need and take in refugees and things like that when we see all the issues that come with places like Sweden and Germany and things like that. So kind of a loaded question. There's a lot to it. If you want me to break it down a little bit more, I definitely can, but I'm just going to kind of let you go on that because you're very well versed when it comes to Islam. I mean, there's probably nobody I know out there that knows more about it than you do. So I'm just going to kind of let you talk and roll on that. Yeah. Teresa bathroom for Yeah. All right, so we're back. Um, so if you need me to kind of repeat my question, just let me know. But otherwise, if you think you kind of remember, I'll yeah, just kind of... just the just threat go. of Islam. So a little bit of throat clearing, I guess. Islam is a entirely global religion. Their ambitions mean that if you take the most extremist view, the entire world should be a caliphate. Right, and you should all submit and be Muslims, right? Muslim means one who submits, mm-hmm. right? So they are very... Islam poses a unique threat to the West, and I use the West loosely based not because of Western European or the United States, 
they use the term the West for any country that has adopted, you know, secularism, globalization, things that we've been talking about. So, Islam poses a unique threat to these countries because it is playing a lifelong, multi-generational game where their goal is to establish this global caliphate. So, this is a problem because Islam is antithetical to the West, right? The West, like I said, means secularization, means freedom of speech. It means freedom of thought, right? There's no thought crime. It means free press. It means the right to offend whoever it is that you want to offend. Islam is entirely antithetical to those principles. You can't... Apostates are killed. Infidels are killed. If you're not a member of the book, right, a Jew or a Christian, you're killed. If you are a Jew or a Christian, you live your life as a demi, right, second-hand citizen. Um, and the treatment of homosexuals, for example, thrown off of roofs, or hung if you're in Iran. If you're a woman, your opinion is basically worth half. Your inheritance is worth a quarter, right? You live your entire life subject to a plastic bag. You're in a giant black burqa. I don't know anybody who would admit that this is, you know, a, a great way to live your life, right? And so, because Islam and the West are diametrically opposed, the two are just incompatible. Islam poses a unique threat to the West because people in the West get sloppy. They get complacent. And they say, actually, you know what? We've, we've reached the pinnacle of society. Look how great our society is. And they don't realize that always, 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 there are these forces that wish to destroy secular and liberal values. Always. Even within the West, right? Even within the West, you still had the rise of people like Martin Heidegger, Right, the famous Nazi philosophist, right, people like Nietzsche, who was anti-democratic. You had postmodernism rise up in the West, very anti-Western, but still a Western tradition. Right, so there's always, always people that are going to oppose, for whatever reason, secular liberal values. Right, and Islam, because of the size of the religion poses a very unique threat. There's 1.5 billion Muslims, right? And they're playing that multi-generational game where they don't care if, okay, my kids, kids, kids can not make any gains in your society in, us, in order for us to implement Sharia. Sharia translates to Islamic law. Sharia and law are synonymous, right? So we can implement Sharia. We can implement... Uh, what uh, um, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, I didn't hear Shelly calls uh, the watch. Anyway, just the surreptitious behavior of Islamic theologians to proselytize, right? So Islamic theologians are playing this very surreptitious game where they are proselytizing, and you can see this now. They're proselytizing in prisons. If you pay attention to who is funding the Quranic prison or Qurans that are spread in prisons, Saudi Arabia. They're they're spreading their most Wahhabist 
Wahhabi, you can get into Wahhabism, but they're spreading the most, you know, Salafi, Wahhabi, very hardline iterations of what the Quran means, right? Very hard interpretations, right? And they're spreading this. And this is going around in prisons, this is going around in communities like what we see in Minnesota, right? And so that is the, that is the threat. It's always this kind of looming threat that the West faces. Because the West, people, like I said, get so complacent in, in what they actually have to defend, right? And you can see this in poll numbers. So Pew asked you know, millennials, how important is it for you to live in a democracy? 20% say very important. Hmm. That is a problem. Yeah, that is a very big crazy. problem. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't entirely believe, right? If you're not entirely convinced that living in a democratic state where freedom of speech is valued above everything else, you're fucked, right? That has to be your core principle. That has to be your operatus mundi, right? That your mode of operation has to be freedom of speech. Freedom of thought is the most important thing for me. From there, everything else happens, right? And Islam is antithetical to that. Islam does not allow for free speech. If you if you insult Muhammad, if you even draw a picture of the Prophet, right, you're fucked. You're killed. You're on a death list. Yeah. Right? This famously from the Muhammad cartoons with you know, Charlie Hebdo, to even not even drawing a picture of it, but just even talking about Islam in a book to what happened to uh, Salman Rushdie, right, in the, the, the satanic rituals. Right, that book that he wrote, which was sort of loosely based on Muhammad, right? You're fucked. You're entirely fucked. And so, people need to get with the program and say, democratic, you know, traditions of secularism and liberalism are the most important things, right? And Islam does pose that problem where it's antithetical to all of that, and. There are different ways in which both the right and the left fuck up that problem, right? And so the left is entirely focused on the game of identity politics, right? Where you're an, you're a Muslim, you're, in, you're immigrated into this country, we're going to protect you because we feel like you're downtrodden, and look at all this Islamophobia that is happening in our country, right? What the fuck does that word even mean? It means absolutely nothing vacuous, vapid statement that means absolutely no Islamophobia? Okay, that's ridiculous, right? We should be able to criticize every, the whole religion, the whole religion is just fucked, but we should be able to criticize it and not mean anything about the person or be bigoted against that person, mm -hmm. right? And so, the left and President Obama as the most salient example was playing that game, where he wouldn't criticize Islam, he wouldn't criticize Muslims for holding views about the world, right? The left lost that game. Now, what you have is the other extremity, right? Because the left lost that game, now we have Trump, who's trying to ban every Muslim from coming into the country. They're losing that game. Why are they losing that game? Well, you poll Muslim communities, right? Uh, Rukmini, um, forgetting her name, she's a New York Times journalist. She did a great podcast called The Caliphate. She's talking to this guy who joined ISIS, and he's from Canada. The most important country ever. Okay, thanks for your maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> he joined ISIS, and he's from Canada. And he joined ISIS because he's a very, very popular 
proselytizers like oh, we're all lucky right the guy from Fort Collins where we're at mm-hmm. he went to Colorado State University he went to that mosque I was right there, right? He was proselytizing and saying, there's a war against Muslims. There's a war, and the, the Ummah, the Muslim community, they have to fight, and we're under attack. Sure enough, Trump, like the perfectly bad timing that he has, shows up and says, yeah, we're at a war with Islam. Great. Thanks, guy. Now all these Muslims that are confused are saying, yeah, there's an actual war against Muslims. And sure enough, most of them go and fight ISIS. So Trump is also playing the bad... He's playing the the role just horribly, right? Just as poorly as Obama played it, Trump is not playing that role poorly. I agree more with Trump, coincidentally, because I I do think we need that sort of ban. We need something... We need to, at the very least, acknowledge that Islam is a problem. But this was a game that the left was just so uninclined to play, right? They were not wanting to even acknowledge that the religion of Islam was a problem, right? And so that's a very long-winded way to just say Islam poses that unique threat because they're playing that multi-generational game. And the way that Islam is structured is they're not going to give up. And we have to be just as committed to not giving up. We have to be just as adamant and just as fierce as a lot of Islamic theologians are. And the thing that a lot of us, right, and I say say the word us tepidly because what I mean by us is people that value freedom of speech, freedom of thought, classic liberal values, right? We have to be just as fierce and adamant in defending those positions, and we can't have that vague, nah, maybe this is worth defending or not. No, we have to be sure, and we have every bit of evidence on our side, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a long-winded way. No, that was spot on. Now, the question that I was kind of thinking, or that sparked my interest when you were talking about the, all that, I'm going to start with the left, and then we can work our way on to the right. But how do we get the left to see the unique threat with Islam and to actually acknowledge it? And instead of trying to have this acceptance, this tolerance that comes with it. They have to just, one, either read the Quran Mm -hmm. or read a summary of the Quran. But the problem that we'll see with something like that is there's people that'll come, like let's say from a college community, where they took a course, and I'm going to say course in parentheses here, about how Islam is a peaceful religion. I would say just read the Quran. Read the Quran. It's it's totally accessible online. Mm-hmm. You can go to Quran.com. It's a website. You can read it. It is translated by some of the grand muftis of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. You can read it for yourself, just, just like the Bible. right? The Bible, if it is truly the Word of God, the Bible should be accessible to anybody. Sure. Right? If you were born on an island and you were abandoned by your parents and you somehow figured out how to read Latin or you figured out how to read Greek, you figured out how to read English, you should be able to read any sort of, you know, any version of the Bible, right? You should be able to read the King James Bible. You should be able to read the Greek version. You should be able, if this is truly the Word of God, you should be able to read any version of that Bible. The same applies to the Quran, right? If you're a, a, a college student and you're curious, mm-hmm. 
go ahead and read it. There are many ways that you can get your hand in the Quran, right? And you can ask very serious questions. What does the Quran teach about gays? Well, let me take you to, you know, the uh, particular verse here, right? It'll, it'll tell you, right? Um, drawing a blank on the actual names. Anyway, that's what I would say to anybody who would say Islam is a religion founded on peace. It is absolutely not. It is a religion entirely founded on the life and times of Muhammad, who was the last prophet of God, right? That's why we have the Hadiths. Hadiths are basically the life and times of Muhammad, and people follow that, life and times and sayings of Muhammad. And people follow that as an example, as the best way to live your life, as one who submits. Yeah. Muslim means one who submits, right? And Muhammad, if you take his example, and you're going to follow his life, had nine-year-old wives, who he consummated his marriage with, Aisha. He murdered infidels, he murdered apostates, right? The first caliph, right, uh, Abu Bakr, was literally led the infidel wars, right? What they call the Ritter Wars, the first infidel wars. That he was going to say, well, this is my territory, we're going to kill all of you, right? And so Islam, for the first hundred years or so, was entirely a religion based upon civil wars, right? They were trying to figure out who the next caliph, who the next you know, ruler should be, right? This is why you have a Sunni-Shiite split, because Shiite literally means proprietor of Ali, right? They were called Shiites of Ali, because they thought that the fourth nephew of Muhammad, or whatever it is, should be the actual caliph, right? Versus the Sunnis, who think that Abu Bakr was the rightful caliph, right? It is, an, it is a religion entirely fun, founded upon apostasy, murdering of infidels, wars, proselytizing, and conquering, right? It's not a peaceful religion. A peaceful religion is something like Jainism, which is entirely committed to nonviolence, right? And so much so that like, you can't even step on like a bug. So much so that Muhammad Gandhi was influenced by Jainism mm -hmm. to tell the Jews and write a letter to Hitler and tell the Jews, hey, actually, go into the ovens. This is the best way to live your life. Go into the ovens, kill yourself, and maybe that'll make enough of a ruckus and the world will pay attention. Right? Muhammad Gandhi famously wrote a letter to Hitler and told him, hey, friend, I heard you're causing you know, a hubbub over there in Europe, but the best course of action, please stop. That was Muhammad Gandhi's response to Hitler. Right? Obviously delusional, but if you really want a religion founded on the peace or nonviolence, Jainism is a religion. Okay, I'll believe you. Jainism is an actual religion founded on nonviolence. Islam is not. And there's no, not a single one. I, I challenge any lefty student to find me one actual scholar of Islam that will tell you this is a religion founded on peace or a peaceful religion. It's not a peaceful religion. Right? So, I would just argue, or I would just tell people, if you if you are inclined to feel like religion or Islam is a religion of peace, please read the Quran for yourself. And it won't take you very many verses. It'll take you ten minutes to even get into the worst verses, right? The first chapter, Al Baqarah, the book about the cow. The first the sixteenth verse is jihad is, you know, prescribed to you even though you might not like it, like holy war. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It's prescribed to you even though you might not like it, and things that are prescribed to you, whatever, however the cult teaches, right? Holy war is prescribed to you. That is one of the main verses in Abakara. The first chapter in the book, you can't you don't even have to get into an hour into it, right? And the first ninety verses are all about hating the Jews and how the Jews fucked up the world and all this other nonsense about fire and how everybody's gonna burn in fire. It's not a peaceful thing, right? So that's that's how I'd answer people on the left who would be inclined to think this is a peaceful religion. It's not. Just read the Quran. Read it for yourself. You yeah. can read it for yourself. So how did and, and you might not know the answer to this, and I don't know where even it began, but how did the left buy into this facade, Post, essentially? Postmodern. So, I don't know if you know the movement of postmodernism. It was started, I think, by a few French philosophers. I'm drawing a blank on the name. I'm not a postmodern historian. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it was started by French philosophers and really adopted quickly by... American philosophers as well, right, who said actually, truth is all subjective. There is no differences in culture. Everything that you experience is entirely, your truth is different than my truth, right? If you like ketchup, well, is ketchup really objectively better than mustard, right? Things like that, right? You can extrapolate all the way up, right, to, well, actually you like killing women, but I don't like killing women. My point of view is a little different. Is your point of view really correct? Right? In this entirely postmodern truth, or postmodern world, where a lot of philosophers now are calling post-truth, right? Where truth doesn't mean anything, it just means your own subjective experience. Right? right? So the left adopted these values and said, actually, you know what? These people are right. My own subjective experience, because of all the influences of my society, of my culture, right? If a Muslim comes up and says, hey, I want to subject my wife to, you know, stay in her house until I give her permission, that's his opinion, right? He, he just grew up in the culture that he grew up in. There's no way for me to really objectively say, nah, actually, you're wrong, right? Hmm. And so that's, that's why the left is in the position that it's in now because they objectively said there's no differences in right or wrong right or wrong is all subjective truth doesn't actually quite mean what we say it means and who's to say that Muslims are wrong right so that's right. that's why we see now what we see just different iterations of that it's just actually no they're not wrong it's, and it blows my mind how they've embedded themselves so much into this culture that they truly believe everything that they're saying about Islam to actually be accurate. Yep. And based on everything you even just said right there, so much that you see them walking down the streets of Washington, D.C. wearing burqas and things like that. It's just, it's something that I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, the funniest thing was watching Linda Sarsour lead a women's resistance march, mm-hmm. literally against Trump for his pussy-grabbing comments, and Linda Sarsour strapping on hijabs on women that were there to protest for women's rights. <laughs> that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Literally <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever seen. How are you going to have, as the leader of your women's rights, a Muslim in full headguard? <laughs> Literally, it couldn't... The best satire writers couldn't have come up 
with this type of irony, right? Yeah. Like you just <laughs> how are you so blind that you're so willfully missing the point? Yeah. And this is just apparently mainstream amongst the left, right? It's just you're so blinded because you you're not bothering to read. And this is what I find a little bit offensive and condescending about amongst the left is I'm over here reading the Quran, reading everything that I can find about Islamic history, Islamic eschatology, everything that is the Quran and Islam, wasting hundreds of hours reading up on this stuff. And then I get some dumbass lefty person telling me, no, actually, that's not what the Quran says, or actually the Quran is actually peace, or actually Muhammad granted women, women's rights before anybody else. Like, no, you've, you've obviously not put any effort into this, mm -hmm. and you're just so happy with your own vision of what you think is right that you won't even bother to listen to what actual... I'm not calling myself a scholar, but there's true scholars of Islam, right? And people that have actually read on this stuff that will tell you very differently, right? And it's just, how are you so obtuse to a certain point that no argument gets through to you, right? Right. So, yeah, that's crazy. And it's hard to say, too, now, obviously the left is being very hypocritical when it comes to this whole view, or their view when it comes to Islam, of being like, we need to accept them, their tolerance, we need to accept their culture, their peaceful, things like that. So obviously they're very misinformed, but I feel like there's a lot of misinformation also when you look at the right as well. Because they're looking at it as like, well, everybody's terrorists and they're here to try to blow us up. Yeah. So I mean, it's like, how do you defend either side at this point? Yeah, and, and it's hard for me to defend the right, because the right, the, the right, what I would consider the right, right, the left is postmodern nonsense, and the right to me is Christian evangelicals. Mm -hmm. That's how I view that. That separation? Dichotomy, right? It's yeah. just, that's what it is to me. And the right is just as confused. They're not, they're not paying attention to what Islam actually means. They're just, they don't want them here. They're concerned about their own Christian values or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they're not actually concerned with what I'm actually concerned with, right? And so the right, yeah, is just as delusional and concerned, but it just so happens, right, just through dint of luck that the right is at the very least willing to acknowledge that Islam is a problem mm -hmm. right and and not just that Islam is a problem but that okay we we need to do something about it and so yeah I would be a little more sympathetic to the right even though they're totally wrong just based on their measures right it's just okay Trump is actually talking about Islam which is a problem right and so yeah the right is I, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm not an evangelical Christian, right? I, I totally disagree with their worldview. But at the very least, they're willing to acknowledge that Islam itself as a religion is a problem. And they're willing to... I don't even know if they're willing to... But this is a good point, right? There is a distinction between ideas and people. And this is something that the left has not adopted. They don't understand it, right? You can have an idea, right? I can have an idea and I could be totally wrong about it, right? And I'm willing to, if somebody, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, your idea is totally wrong and this is why it's wrong, I don't want to be wrong for any longer than I have to be, right? And so the left is unable to distinguish that Islam is just a set of ideas. It's a book cooked up by 
ninth century philosophers in in Syria, right, or or Jordan, most according to Tom Holland, right, is that these were ideas cooked up by ninth century, tenth century philosophers, and they're not willing to distinguish the fact that Islam is a set of ideas between the Arabs that promulgate these ideas, right? And that's a problem when you can't dis when you can't draw a distinction between the ideas and the people that hold them, right? You you are so quick, and this is why we see it, to adopt these values or think that people are being Islamophobic. And that that is somehow synonymous with racism, right? This Islamophobia is not on the same level as racism or even bigotry, right? Racism and bigotry I take very serious, mm-hmm. right? I think actual racists, people like Jared Taylor and Richard Spencer, which are the most salient right now, are actually terrible people. And when you can't draw a distinction between Richard Spencer and people like Sam Harris, who are critical of Islam, right, but can are some of the smartest people, right, the most erudite people on this topic, when you can't draw a distinction between your in your worldview, if you can't draw a distinction between the two, then you've lost the plot. You are confused and how do we how do we get you back to reality, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the biggest problem that the left faces is that they can't draw that distinction between Islam as a set of ideas and people, the Arab people, Bangladeshi people, whoever it is that promulgates this idea, right? So yeah, it's a it's a huge problem. Right? Yeah. So <clears throat> kind of hard to phrase this question, I suppose, but if you look at history as a whole, during, let's say, the time of the Crusades, you know, thir- 12th, 13th century, things like that, Islam was actually considered a very progressive religion at that time, you know, they were very smart as far as mathematics, uh, culture, you know, writings, things of that nature, and yet it seems like when you look at their history that they have started taking a step back over time. How, how did that essentially happen? I mean, like... But they never took a step forward. Okay. They never... A lot of the... A lot of what, we, what people would colloquially know as the Islamic golden age of mm-hmm. science is over-exaggerated. Okay. Right? Very exaggerated. Right? It's just... It wasn't this time of secularism and science just brilliant, right? It just a lot of it is exaggerated. One of the biggest contributions was optics that the Islamic you know scientists essentially put together. But the reason for this optics was because they thought every mosque should face towards Mecca. So okay, you're ten thousand miles removed from Mecca, how can I get this mosque perfectly aligned to Mecca? Right? And it wasn't this revolutionary thought in philosophy that they came up with. It was a lot of the translations that they kept, for example, in, in, in Baghdad of Aristotle, of Plato, right? They, they conserved a lot of the Greek thought. Hmm. And it was also, you also have to juxtapose that with what the Catholic Church was doing in those centuries, right? The 13th century, very dark area for the Catholic Church. It wasn't, it was essentially just, that's why we call it the Dark Ages, Right, there wasn't any sort of spark that could light the scientific revolution. A lot of it tried to happen, right? It tried to happen, but they just killed them, right? And Galileo was one of the first people, right, in the 15th century that actually said, "Hey, you know what? These are the moons of Saturn, 
what happened to Galileo, where he was in prison for the rest of the life, yeah, forced to... Like home arrest, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so, it, it's not like you can juxtapose Islamic society in the 13th century with some bastion of free thought anywhere else in the world, right? It was just both of these religions just cover the entirety of the world, mm -hmm. and you're fucked. <laughs> you're just fucked if you're a free thinker, right? So, it's an exaggeration to say that Islam was, you know, going through these golden ages, right? It's just so people can feel better about themselves. Just, oh yeah, Islam was at some point, you know, a bastion of, of free thought. It wasn't. It, it's just a, a false fact to say that about it, right? And, and yes, there was, I like a lot of early Islamic thinkers, right? Mm -hmm. Omar Khayyam, one of my favorite poets. What a fascinating poet to read, early Islamic thinker, right? And, and it's not to say that there wasn't, you know, free thinkers in the Islamic society, but because of how the Quran is structured and because of how the Quran teaches people to structure their society, there wasn't any room for growth, right? And so that is, it's not like Islam was ever, you know, at this pinnacle where, hey, this is how it's, this is what an ideal Islamic society looks like, right? If you transplant a 13th century, 12th century Islamic society into today, it would look like the most autocratic, theocratic, right? It would be, North Korea would pale in comparison to what these Islamic theocracies would be, right? Huh. And so we, we tend to embellish how good these Islamic theocracies actually were, right? People were, like I said, there's the dhimmi status of Jews and Christians that have to live as second-hand citizens, right? And look at Israel. Sorry, go on that. No, yeah, no. But yeah, no, that's that is an embellishment of history to say that Islamic societies were going through this golden age and that's just it's not true. Right. Okay. So I have two more questions and then we can kinda of wrap it up. Um so based on everything you just said and kinda of to my previous question is have you ever seen those pictures of looking at and it might be just because Iran might be very different I don't know best way to phrase this but it might be its own different problem all on its own but if you look at like pictures of Iran from 1960 as opposed to Iran from today it looks like they've essentially taken a step backward in time as well um, because if you look you know you see people driving cars women weren't wearing burqas you know they're wearing dresses things like that looking very I don't know, best way to phrase it, but maybe on par with the rest of the world as far as how, you know, women dressed and things like that went. And then when you start looking at decade by decade by decade all the way up into the modern day, it seems like each decade they've taken a step backwards in time. I mean, how would you explain that? I mean, how has it changed so much in that particular culture that it seems like they are just going back in time? So this is, this is a perfect example of how... Islam and religion, this is Hitchens' quote, right, is religion poisons everything. Right? So, Iran has never been a traditional Islamic country. Iran, essentially Persia, mm -hmm. was way before Islam was introduced, a Zoroastrian nation. Right? This is where Zoroastrianism came from. This is a very dualistic religion, right? There's good and evil, and you have 
opposing forces, and you can see this influence of Zoroastrianism kind of seep into Christianity, where people can't quite figure out what the devil is, what God is, is devil the, you know, just as equal as God, right? This is all Zoroastrianism, right? So if Iran or Persia has never fully bought into Islam, the way that Saudi Arabia, the way that Yemen, the entire Arabian Peninsula has really bought into it, right? So always, always, always in Iran, there's this undercurrent of nationalistic pride, Persian pride, of secular pride, really. And so what happened in Persia, right, just a quick, a quick synopsis, right, in the 1950s, there was, in the 1920s, basically the Shah of Iran was, so he was the king of Persia, right? You had an entire kingdom of Persia for about 50 years, and then what you had was a nationalistic movement to implement a democratically elected leader in Mohammed Basadek, right? He was elected leader of the nation, but he was very nationalistic. Right? He wanted to say, he wanted to make oil a... Iranian export, he said, no, all everything Iranian is exclusively Iranian, we're not going to trade. So the U.S. had problems with this, right? And they helped to depose Mohammed Mustafa. It was also a lot of Iranian problems, right? U.S. isn't this mastermind of, you know, you know <laughs> deposing leaders, right? I feel like people give too much credit to the CIA. But anyway, Mohammed Mustafa was deposed, and the Shah of Iran was implemented again, right? Uh, drawing black But anyway, the Shah was implemented. The Shah was a very cruel leader, killed a lot of people, right? 1970s roll around, Ayatollah Khomeini was first, um, he, he was banned from Iran, basically, and he made this grand entrance where a lot of the Islamists in Iran, because there was a, a very strong Islamist undercurrent in Iran, he deposed the Shah, right, you have the Islamic Revolution, and but to, just to answer your question quickly, right through the 50s to 70s right, it was a becoming a secularized nation, right, it was it was not under an Islamic theocracy, it was an autocratic theocracy, or autocratic rule, right, and it was trying to get headway, like trying to gain headway, right, into you know, women be able to wear skirts right, you see that in a lot of pictures right, a lot of Know, pro-Western liberal values that you see in these early 70s pictures, right? Yeah. And Iran looks like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. Right? And so, in Iran in the 70s, there was this undercurrent of Islamization, right? Where Ayatollah Khomeini was very popular and he was going to lead a revolution in Iran to depose the Shah and a lot of the Islamists loved him, right? So, 1979 happens, Ayatollah Khomeini wins, deposes the Shah, the Shah is exiled, right? Ayatollah is implemented as the grand leader, and so, as the grand leader starts to impose all of these Islamic laws, you start to see the regression of that society, right? Where before there was this notion of secularism, there was, this, because there is a lot of Islamic, or not sorry, Iranian scholars and journalists who were very pro- Western, right? There's people like uh, I have all their names written down. <laughs> I'm trying to blind you. It's hard to pronounce. But anyway, there was a lot of Islamic 
or sorry, Iranian thinkers that were, were very pro-Western. They would read people like Karl Popper and Lars Sikora at that book right there, um, Children in Paradise, which talks about the entire intellectual you know, movement under the Ayatollah. Right? They were talking about we want to be pro-Western, and a lot of them thought that Islam could be reformed into a, a modern society, right? They would read Karl Marx, so you have Islamic Marxists, mm -hmm. right? They thought that, yeah, it's, it's entirely compatible to have an Iranian society be Islamic and be Western at the same time, right? And so a lot of these, these intellectuals were murdered, a lot of these intellectuals were jailed, and you started to see very hardline thinkers get into the head of Ayatollah Khomeini and his successor, Khomeini. Um, and so that's why you see the regression of Iran, right? Where, where Islam is implemented, you start to see the regression of societies, right? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what you see now. And that's, that's happened through the decades, right? Where Islam, or Iran, is a very nationalistic, very proud of their Persian background, but because Islam, because there are so many hardline Islamic thinkers that they've entirely decimated the society, right? They've decimated, they've killed all of, or, or exiled all of the popular thinkers, right, all of the popular journalists. They're obviously gone, and they're fucked, right? They're just, and so all you're left with is hardline Islamic thinkers running the society, right? And so that's why we see the degradation of Iran. And Iran, sadly, and this is one of the good things that Trump is doing, he's supporting Iran, he, he's telling the, the entire theocracy of Iran to go fuck themselves. That's a good thing, right? Where he came out that um, Rouhani, he's basically telling him to go fuck himself. Yeah. Right? He was saying, like, if you're going to fuck with the U.S., like, you're not going to fuck with the U.S., right? And so this gives Iranian people a lot of hope. And you see now all of the protests that are going on in Iran, right? Yeah, and so it's getting crazy. And it that just, if that isn't a clear indication of how Iranians want to just throw away all of the Islamic nonsense that has been imposed upon them and just want to be Persians. They would just want to have their own secular national identity, right? It's just that I couldn't have a better sign for what is happening actually in Iran, right? And just because there's so many hardline Islamic theologians in power, you've just seen that society completely regress, right? So, yeah. Well, your last little bit there, I guess, kind of does segue into my last question that I have. Um, so in, like, the 16th century, Christians had uh, essentially a reformation with their religion, you know, because previous to that, they had, obviously, the Crusades, things of that nature. I mean, Christian religion was pretty messed up until, well, anyway, that's a whole other topic we can go down. But anyway, so with everything that's going on in, like, Iran and stuff like that right now, and like you said, they want to essentially embrace being Persians, things like that. How could we get, and this is a very hard question because I don't know if there is a right answer to it, but how could we get Iran to essentially have, or not Iran, but Islam to have some kind of reformation so that it truly can be a religion that actually has peaceful practices, things like that. I mean, is that something that you foresee actually even being possible? I don't foresee it as being possible, and I think the word first, the Reformation, is misused. 
the Reformation, if you study, if you study Martin Luther, mm -hmm. was not a Reformation to be less pious and be more secular and be more liberal. The Reformation of Martin Luther, Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis on the Catholic Church right. and said, you're selling out. You're buying basically salvation for people. You're, you're trading salvation for gold. And Martin Luther said, nope, that's not right. Right? You can't just trade gold and allow people to save them, save their souls for however much gold you want to trade for. Right? And Martin Luther's big statement was sola fide. Mm -hmm. Solely through faith can you actually be, can saved. your soul be saved, right? So the Reformation wasn't, is a misnomer because it, it's not, it's not a Reformation of Catholicism. It was a, it was essentially Martin Luther saying, you're not doing enough for God, and I want to be more hardline, and Martin Luther was crazy. He was legitimately crazy if you read what he actually said, right? And so, I don't think there should be a Reformation where all of a sudden we have thousands of denominations of different Muslims, right? Because that won't work either. The difference, the substantial difference between Christianity and Islam is that Christianity has a small passage that says, do unto Caesar as you would do unto Caesar, and do unto God as you would do unto God, right? Basically, giving you permission to behave as a citizen of the country and still hold your faith. And this is exactly what we see through every every evangelical denominator or every Christian denomination throughout the country, right? Mm -hmm. People say, oh yeah, my faith means everything, but I can still be a citizen of this country, right? I can still, right, I can still vote, I can still do all these things, right? But my faith means everything to me. And how can you, how can you, you know, behave or act throughout the dichotomy? Well, it's because of that line, right? And so Islam doesn't have that line, right? It doesn't, it says... In order to be a citizen of any nation, right, you have to follow the Quran. You have to follow Islamic values. So, I see it. I see it as a doomed effort to try to to try to suggest that there should be some kind of secularization of Islam. What we need is a truly concerted effort to promote anti-Islamic values, or just sort of secular liberal values within Islamic countries because they do exist and they do happen they're in the tens of thousands now right but we need to promote these people right we need to promote people like Raif Badawi right who's the most famous blogger of Saudi Arabia who's been in prison for thousands of days for literally saying nothing more than we should take a look at the Quran right mm -hmm. and we need to promote people like that right we need to promote people like um Faisal on Mutar, who's from Iraq, who a great secular thinker, who you know, made it out of Iraq, but is, is a secular thinker nonetheless, right? He he's trying to promote liberalism and secularism in Iraq, a very Islamic society, right? And we need to promote people like that who are going to say, you need to think very differently about your worldview, and you need to change your ideas of what what Islam means, right? And so I don't think it's going to take an analogous movement of the Reformation, I think we need to create an entirely different movement, and it's going to hopefully go down in history, but we need to create an entirely different movement where Islam is valued less and less, and secularization and liberalism are valued much more. How do we get people on board with that? Through conversation. Through, you know, because people are very good at adopting good arguments. 
right? If you, if you present a strong enough argument, people are going to be persuaded, right? You're kind of a slave to your own reason. And so we just need more conversations like, I don't know if you paid attention, a few years ago, right, there was an entire atheist movement with Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Dan Dennett, and Richard Dawkins, where people in the comfort of their own homes, right, of YouTube, and you could just sit there, watch, be influenced by people just talking, right? And that needs to happen worldwide. That needs to happen throughout the entire Islamic world, where very popular people, right, we need these videos, these debates, these conversations to happen by the tens of thousands, where we are changing societies, right? Debate and conversation is actually changing people's minds, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to do, right? We, we need it to be less taboo to change your mind. We need to have, we need to be, we need to have people open to discussion, right? So that's how you do it. I think that's the best way to do it. So I'll make this the, the final question. It's a very short answered question, but, um, so you're, you're very, very well read on this topic. I mean, I know this is something that you've been very passionate about in the years that I've known you. This is something that you and I have talked about multiple different times. So, and, and it'll probably be hard for you to narrow it down to just three, but if whoever's listening to this podcast, they wanted to find out more about some of the different topics that we've been talking about tonight, you know, when it comes to Islam, maybe even globalism, things of that nature, do you have any books or any authors or anything like that that you'd recommend that people actually read or research or anything like that to actually find out a little bit more? Yeah, there's three books, and I can let you borrow them, but there's three books that I would absolutely recommend to people. One is Will McCant's book, called ISIS Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. It's in it's about a two hundred page book entirely dedicated to Islamic eschatology. Okay. Eschatology means end times, right? So you can you can very easily see how entities like the Islamic State, ISIS, are behaving and why they're behaving and it will kind of clear any doubt that people who are Muslim are not influenced by the Quran, which I think is kind of a misconception, right? They, they oh, I'm a Muslim, but I'm not influenced by the Quran, mm -hmm. right? That's what people on the on the left seemingly think, right? So, Will McCann's book on ISIS will put to bed any of those doubts, right? So that's the first one. If you want to learn about the Islamic theology and Islamic eschatology, the second book is Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment, right? If there was ever the perfect argument for why liberalism secularism, the tool of science, right, and progress actually works, right, if you're trying to figure out, well, actually, why is one nation better than another nation as far as GDP, as far as quality of life, that's the book, right, it's Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment now, and the third book is Christopher Hitchens' Letters to a Young Contrarian, mm -hmm. right, if you're ever trying to figure out how to think for yourself, how to not be a part of groupthink, that's the best book, it's about 100 pages 13 different letters to tell you, you know, actually don't follow groupthink, right? Just think for yourself. This is how you're going to be able to, this is basically teaching you how to think and how to not follow groupthink. So basically your own opinion. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Well, that's all I have. So, I mean, if you have any other final thoughts or anything like that that you want to throw out there, feel free. I think that was good. Okay. I mean, this didn't go necessarily down the course that I think we were originally thinking it would go down. Um, but I think it was still, it was still good. It was still good information for people to hear. Yeah. Because it's one of those things that I feel like a lot of people are very 
I don't know, misinformed is the right word, but they a lot of people have essentially a lot of public views on these different yeah. topics that you and I have been just talking about right there, and and maybe a misconception of like the public view of things. Yeah, and it helps. It helps people. I don't know who's going to listen to this, but it helps people who are very smart and are actually scholars. It helps them realize that their arguments make a difference, mm-hmm. right? Like we're we're not scholars. We're not going to be tenured at any you know academy or something. Yeah. But we can still adopt those arguments and still make very good arguments for why we're going to vote the way that we are mm-hmm. and influence our society in the way that we are, right? And so. Yeah, we, we might not be, I might not be making the smartest argument for any position that I've argued for, right? But I can still, I think, get away, right, with making good arguments, right? And, and that's what, that's what's important. It's important for people to realize that conversation actually works, right? And mm-hmm. that listening to conversations actually works, right? So I used to think very differently than I think now, right? Four years ago, you would have caught me, you know, on the frontier of the, of the far left, right? Just being very, you know, you're racist, all these things, right? <laughs> and it just so happens that conversations have actually helped me change my mind, right? And mm-hmm. so that's what, that's what I think this podcast is such a good testament to is, is the power of conversation and being influenced and just hearing people. And it doesn't have to be the smartest people or I'm not the smartest person by any means, right? And it's just, but I can still just, at the very least, if hopefully I can just nudge somebody to learn more, right? And that's what I yeah. think this podcast is so important for it's, it's it's two people that are well read but you know we're not scholars but at the very least we can make good arguments for things right and hopefully that just that that keeps the conversation going right yeah so. and then the, we're not going to come across as those people like you know you'd see like oh that's that redneck over there that's just saying yeah. that like they're, they're taking our jobs yeah. and they're blowing up our cities type thing that we're at least we're coming from a point of like we've studied this we've yeah. at least listened to the actual arguments we've made up our own opinions of yeah. things so, yeah. yeah definitely all right well i appreciate your time jerry it's always fun when we get to do this um our next few it sounds like are going to probably try to be what like skype or virtual or something yeah, like that definitely. so that'll be a, a new challenge for us yeah. to try to figure out how to yeah. do but um anyway man i appreciate it um i don't have any final thoughts so if you have anything feel free to throw it out there nope no. all right it's pretty drunk so i don't know what i said <laughs> Yeah, right at this point, I think this was like three, four gin and tonics in. Yeah, half a bottle of gin. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for being offended with us, guys. Woo!